this sermon, I'll explain the tale of two goats and how we must reject the one and embrace the other. We normally think of the Day of Atonement as picturing the removal of Satan from deceiving mankind, and we think of it that alone. Now, that's true. It does picture the removal of Satan, but that's not all that it pictures. Indeed, this day is about about that, but also about another goat that was there and was sacrificed at that time. And just as with Adam and Eve, we all must make the choice that they were given to follow God or to follow that other being. We read of the Day of Atonement in the 16th chapter of Leviticus, Leviticus 16, gives us the ceremony in the Old Testament. We have a New Testament explanation of it all. But I want to just briefly review here Leviticus 16. It's very important that we do so. And it's very easy to get lost in the uh, scripture here where it talks about all the things that were to be done on that day. It's really not as complicated as it first seems. I've divided the the 16th chapter into four different distinct sections. You could divide it, I suppose, in different ways, but there's a logic behind uh, the way that I've divided it here. The first five verses tell us about the animals that are involved, the four that are sacrificed, the one that is let go in the wilderness. And they introduce the subject of the high priest and when he can go into the Holy of Holies. Now, the Holy of Holies was a section of the tabernacle. First of all, the tabernacle is not like the Mormon tabernacle, a big structure. Uh, it was a tent, and it would be like this room here. And instead of having a ceiling, we just have the walls go up so far. They were curtains, and just remove the ceiling and about eight feet of walls or so, and you would have a picture of what the tabernacle was. But inside that structure, that courtyard within it, was a building, uh, again, a tent. And this tent was divided into two parts. In the first part, they could go, uh, the high priest would go on a regular basis. They would change out the showbread. They would light and uh, tend to the candles and so forth. But they were not allowed to go into the second part, just one individual. That was the high priest, and he would go once a year. And we learn that here in the 16th chapter. It says in verse 2, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil. Before the mercy seat, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, uh, which is on the Ark. Lest he die, for I will appear in a cloud above the mercy seat. And then when he comes in there, it tells us he was to take a young uh, bull he was also to provide a ram that would be sacrificed in this uh, ceremony of the day. And then he was to take from the congregation of the children of Israel two goats and also a ram. So what we have here is a bullock from the high priest. We have a ram from the high priest. We have a ram from the congregation or the children of Israel. And we have two goats that are provided by the congregation as well. So there are five animals that were involved in this uh, particular day. Verses 6 through 10 uh, really tell us what he is supposed to do. It, it gives just a, a very brief overview that Aaron is to sacrifice the bull as a sin offering uh, and tells him where to do it. And then he's to take the two goats and he's to cast lots over the goats. Now, lots were of different forms. We would see them somewhat similar in our day and age as to putting something in a hat, two items in a hat that are similar or exactly the same, but with something else written on them. One was for the Azazel, one was for the Lord, and they were to draw out and put one on the goat of the, for the Lord and one on the goat for Azazel, as it's called in the original. So he would cast lots, he would shake them up. Sometimes they would take these and they would put them in the lap of a, of a, like a, an apron or whatever and then shake them up and then pick them out. So it was a, a way of finding that 
it was God indicating which one was which. The goats were both without blemish. Uh, I don't know that they go to the extreme that the Jews are today with the red heifer where they have to try to find a red heifer that is so perfect that only has two or fewer white hairs on it. You know, they, they examine it to, a, to an extreme degree. Uh, you don't get that impression reading the Bible, but uh, that's what the Jews do today when they uh, look for something that is perfect. But we know that they had two goats without uh, any kind of imperfection, such as a short leg or a limp or uh, a missing eye or something like that. It was to be uh, without blemish. And he was to cast lots over these two goats, one for the Lord, one for the Azazel, or the one that would be let loose into the wilderness. And that's a little bit of what we read there in verses 6 through 10. And then from verse 11 onward, we have the the exact, not the overview as we've read in these first two sections, but now we have step by step exactly what should be done. So it says in verse 11 that Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself, and then he'll take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar and uh, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. So that's inside the, the Holy of Holies. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. So there will be a cloud of smoke there within the Holy of Holies, where the uh, Ark of the Covenant was, and the seat, which was called the mercy seat, the top of it there. And he's to take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. And you can read through this whole section, and I encourage all of you to do so if you've not done so. Uh, and, and you will see that uh, there are various specific things that he was to do as far as sprinkling blood and uh, offering incense and all the things that he was to do. So you can read through that. I won't read the whole thing there. But he was then to kill the goat of the sin offering. That was the next thing he was to do. And it tells how he was to handle it with the, the blood and going into the holy place and so forth. And then we read a little bit later in verse 20, when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. It's a very interesting article by Mr. Peter Nathan. I don't have the exact... Uh, uh, you can look it up on atonement or just look it up on the uh, search at our website by Mr. Peter Nathan talking about uh, the, the goat, and, and how this was at a time of year that he had to probably drag the goat off. It didn't really want to go at that time. It was time of mating and so forth, but taking it out into the wilderness, and he lets it go. And then Aaron was to come back to the tabernacle of meeting. He was to change his clothes, and he was to offer the burnt offering of the, lamb, of the uh, ram and also the one for the people. And the man who took the goat into the wilderness uh, was then to come back and he was to wash his clothes and so forth. So this is pretty much what we have here. You can read it all. I'm not going to read it all for lack of time, but you can do so, and I encourage you to do so, so you get the picture. But just remember that the first five verses kind of give a a big picture view of it, and verses 6 through 10 uh, kind of give a big picture, just going over some of the same things. But from verse 11 onward, we actually have the ceremony as it would have been conducted. Beginning in verse 29, we then kind of have a wrap-up of this. He says, This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls. So this is that tenth day of the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar. And they were to afflict their souls, or we are to afflict our souls, and do no work at all, whether a native of your country 
or a stranger who dwells with you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. Now, the afflicting of the soul is, uh, the, the word that is used there is also used in Psalm, the 35th chapter. And we read there in verse 13 where David was talking about his enemies and how they reward him evil for good in verse 12. And then in verse 13, Psalm 35, 13. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting. And the word humble there is same in the original as afflict. And we understand, and of course the Jews uh, understand this, and they practice this, where we afflict our souls by fasting. And that's what we're doing today. And fasting is without food or liquid. Now, of course, there are those who may have... Uh, certain circumstances, certain medical conditions, and we don't make those decisions for people. But there are certain medical conditions where it make it very difficult, if, if not impossible, to fast without killing yourself. And, of course, God understands those things, but even there, uh, one might want to talk to a Jewish doctor uh, because they might give you some, some good advice on that. But this is the most important day of the year for Jews. And as I given in the past in a sermon and also in an article many years ago in Living Church News, it was the one day, even though it was the opening day of the World Series, when Sandy Koufax, who was a Jew, refused to pitch on this day. Actually, I think the truth was that uh, Buzzy, not Buzzy, but Basie, uh, yeah, I guess it was, the, the owner, uh, said he, he wouldn't allow him. He wasn't going to make the young man make that that decision. Uh, because he knew that it would tear him up to have to make that decision. And so he didn't allow him to do that, or at least that's reported that that was the case. But the bottom line is that this is very important for Jews. They may pitch in a baseball game any Sabbath day. They may violate the other laws of God, but when it comes to this day, it's very important because they believe that this is the day on which their names will be written in the book of life if they observe this day faithfully. So uh, that's that's their problem in terms of uh, not really keeping it the way that they should all the time. But nevertheless, it's a very important day. And it says here, it's a Sabbath of solemn rest. You shall afflict your souls. It's a statute forever. Verse 32, back in Leviticus 16, verse 32. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest to his father's pla- in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments, and he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. In other words, it was to cleanse, as it were, spiritually speaking, the the sanctuary, the altar, all the instruments of the temple that have been defiled throughout the year by the sins of the people, and also to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Verse 34. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, this seems like something that I I suppose that most Christians, when they read this, they read about animal sacrifices and various things and think that it has nothing to do with, with them. And yet, in the New Testament, those who study it enough recognize that it is spoken of in the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to go over to Hebrews and just pick up a few notes there. It describes Jesus Christ as the high priest in previous chapters. And then when we get to the 8th chapter, it says in verse 1, Hebrews 8 and verse 1, Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. 
So it's saying that Jesus Christ is our high priest and that as a high priest, he has to offer something up. And when we read or when we go over the 16th chapter of Leviticus, we see that the high priest is very prominent in all this. It is only he that goes into the sanctuary and he does that only once a year. And so it says, verse 4, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts and according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. So he got the instructions from God when he went up into the mountain, was given the Ten Commandments. He also was given... Uh, during that time, the instructions on how to build this tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry in that, in so much as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Then it talks about the new covenant in the verses that follow there in chapter 8. Very important verses. We've covered them many times before. We'll skip down to chapter 9. and verse 1 it says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. That, that tent structure that I mentioned earlier. For a tabernacle, this tent structure was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the second part of that tent within that uh, courtyard area, with uh, behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables or tablets of the covenant. Mr. Wally Smith gave a very interesting sermon on the subject of the ark and what's in it, the the pot of manna, uh, Aaron's rod that budded, and of course the Ten Commandments, and he shows what each one of them symbolized. You might want to go to our website and look that one up by Mr. Wally Smith on the ark of the covenant. It says, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. He says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So we don't know every last detail of the tabernacle, but we have that big picture that he mentions there. We'll continue in verse 6. Now, when these things had been prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services with the showbread and the lighting the candles and so forth, tending to them. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So this is that day. This is the day that he went in. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while the first tabernacle was still standing. Verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So all those sacrifices were to point to something else. There was a certain, I guess you might say, a certain forgiveness or certain atonement at that time. But in terms of, of perfecting anybody, they could not do that. It says concerning only, verse 10, with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. But Christ came as high priest. So he is the high priest, represented there, of good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So it's speaking of heaven itself, where he goes with, uh, as high priest of the Father, with this sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own blood. He said, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, we, we have a mixing of things there because it speaks specifically of the Day of Atonement, where he goes in once a year, but then it mixes in all the whole, the whole sacrificial system there because it talks about the ashes of a heifer and, and so forth and various washings and, and uh, foods and drinks. So all of that was, is kind of mixed into this whole big picture of what he's describing, but he's describing the high priest's work of going of taking care of the tabernacle and going in once a year on the Day of Atonement. But it covers all those sacrifices as well. And it says, verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a better covenant, of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of transgressions and the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Verse 23, it says, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. So the tabernacle was a symbol of what took place in heaven or was to take place in heaven. So that's why he had to make the tabernacle just so. Now, does that mean that God's throne is sitting there in a tent and so forth? No, I don't think it means that. But it's talking about, in other words, God knew when he gave it to Moses that there's a ceremony that had to take place on this day, and it had to picture perfectly the, the picture of it, not the actual, you know, doing of it in the physical sense, but it had to picture what Christ would do, which would be to offer himself as high priest to present himself with his own blood before the Father to forgive our sins, to take care of that. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the world. And there's Christ would have had to suffer often. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he only had to do that one time. It's interesting in Catholicism, they sacrifice Christ regularly. Uh, when they take the, the wine, they believe that it turns literally into the blood of Christ someplace, the uh, transubstantiation. Uh, in other words, he's sacrificed often in that sense, instead of it being symbolic of what happened we symbolize what Christ did once for all, for all mankind forever. Now, we might ask the question about the two goats. Some have erroneously thought that that both goats symbolize Christ. And that is a a common misunderstanding. It's interesting that it's understood that way by people, for the most part, who never keep these days. Uh, you know, if, if you don't keep the, the holy days, you're not going to understand the holy days. And yet sometimes even uh, members can get confused by that and begin to think that they read a commentary someplace of someone who doesn't observe these days and they come up with a different idea on it. So how do we know that the goat does not, the second goat, the one that is let loose in the wilderness, does not represent uh, Christ himself, two different aspects of, of, the, uh, of, of Christ. Well, if you go back to Leviticus 26, I'm sorry, is it 16 once again, there's an interesting uh, term there, and, and it is confusing, I think, for, for people uh, who read this, but in verse 10 it says, but the goat on which the lot fell, this is Leviticus 16.10, fell to be this scapegoat, and the word there should not be scapegoat. It originally came from 1611, escapegoat, but Satan, being the clever fellow that he is, has turned 
scape or escape goat into shortened scapegoat, meaning the goat that is, uh, meaning one who is guilty, one who's blamed for something he's not guilty of. Uh, the scapegoat, the fall guy. And so he is transformed it that way, knowing what this goat pictures. And it says, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it. Atonement upon it. Now, the goat that symbolized Christ was sacrificed as, as Christ, as it were. But this is a, uh, a atonement upon it. Uh, not that, that uh, the goat is, is the atonement, but it's made upon it. And he has all the sins of the children of Israel in verse 21. All their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat before they send him away into the wilderness. Now, we all know that Satan was the one who stirred Adam and Eve to sin. And so, in that sense, he has his part in their sin. When we look at the order of the holy days, it becomes very clear that this second goat is a picture of Satan being removed from Israel being removed from mankind where he can influence them any further. Let's go over to Revelation, the 19th chapter, and let's just look at the sequence of events that we have here as we read through the last uh, two of the last chapters in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, the 19th chapter, we have the marriage of the Lamb that is spoken of in uh, verse 6 and 7. But then we get to verse 11, and it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head on, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So it's very clearly who this is speaking of, speaking of Christ. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And we can read of that over in the book of Zechariah, how the nations are going to fight against Christ at his return. And he'll defeat them. And then make them keep, I say make them, he'll give them strong encouragement to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, otherwise they'll get rather thirsty when he cuts off their rain supply. But it says he strikes the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Now sometimes people thought, well that seems kind of harsh that Christ would rule the nations with a rod of iron. But look at our world today. Look at the the knuckleheads that we have in the world today. The crazy ideas that they are promoting. You know, this trans movement where they are mutilating the bodies, even of minors in some cases. Uh, you know, you, you, you would never have guessed this some years ago. But that's the things that they do. And when you look at the authoritarianism that is coming down, in our Western cultures, and more and more, we see strong men rising up. And we see people behind the scenes moving our world in a very bad direction. And you've got this war in Ukraine. And when you look at all the things that are going to go on before the end comes, you understand why Christ is going to have to come back with a rod of iron. He's going to embrace a lot of hurting people. But he's going to have to use a rod of iron on a few others. Because there are too many people in this world that have their own ideas and just simply refuse to respond to, to reason, to right reason. When you read through the book of Revelation, you find that even after all these plagues, they still rebel. They still refuse to give up their, their drugs. Actually, the word is pharmakeia in the, the Greek. Uh, drug use, uh, their sexual immorality, their murders, and so forth. 
They refuse to give up their idols. And so he's going to have to deal with a strong hand. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he had us on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, we sing that, or I don't sing it, uh, but people sing it at around Easter time, or the Messiah. And there's that very powerful, uh, I don't want to say aria, it's not an aria, but of course, uh, you know, we're King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And they never know who those kings are that he's the king of, and who the lords are that he is the lord of. But that's talking about you and me, if we make it into his kingdom. He's going to be the king of us as kings, because we are to be kings and priests, as we read there in the fifth chapter, verses 9 and 10, and also Revelation 20, as we shall see in verse 4. We're going to rule with him. He says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. So it describes this battle that, or refers to this battle that's going to take place as they fight against Christ. So it's picturing Christ's return. We know that the holy day that pictures that is trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets. Seven trumpet plagues, the day of the Lord. The seventh one in which he uh, is going to return during the seventh. But during that seventh trumpet, there are seven last plagues that take place. And then this climactic battle at the end is going to take place there. And so then we come to chapter 20 and verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and set a seal, shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. He's been deceiving mankind from the beginning till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And it gets back to that a little bit later. Now, the next thing we read of is verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, nor had received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and they reigned. They ruled with Christ for a thousand years. And it says the rest of the dead, though, didn't live again until the thousand years were finished. Because this is the first resurrection as such. And he says, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. So that first resurrection uh, brings us to ruling for a thousand years. And we understand that verse 4 is talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, which we'll be joyously celebrating in just a few days from now. Some of you are already, as it were, on your way. Many others will leave tomorrow, and then others on Friday, and some on Sunday. But we'll be there to celebrate this thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And we'll be reading scriptures about that during that time, and looking forward to it. But then we come to the great white throne judgment. And I won't go into detail on that, but that starts down in, in verse uh, 11. And we know that that picture is the last great day. So what we see is the 19th chapter talks about Christ's return. The Feast of Trumpets is wrapped up in that. We see that verse 4 of chapter 20 talks about the millennium, the Feast of Tabernacles. And then later in chapter 20, it talks about the last great day. So what's missing? What's missing is the Day of Atonement. And it's sandwiched right between Christ's return and the um, uh, Feast of Tabernacles, in other words, between trumpets and tabernacles. Atonement is in there, and we find here that that's when Satan, in the story flow of things, when Satan is bound. So there are many reasons that we believe that uh, the second goat, the one that is let loose into the wilderness, he's not killed, but he is let loose into the wilderness, and 
he will be returning a thousand years later, but uh, then he'll be banished forever. So we understand that that is the picture that we have here. What else could we, how else would we picture the Day of Atonement in the context of this if we did not understand uh, the two goats there? Lesson 16 of the Bible study course explains this in detail. It doesn't go into great detail, but it gives the overview. And if you are new and have had a little difficulty following some of these things, then I encourage you to take uh, Lesson 16 of the Bible study course. Of course, take all the course, but Lesson 16 will uh, cover this uh, in uh, very simple detail that should make it very clear. And, of course, we have the booklet, The Holy Days, God's Master Plan, that also explain these holy days in order. Now, we have the same choice to make as that that was given to Adam and, of course, Eve, his wife, to choose between two trees, two ways of life. We can look to God or we can look to ourselves as we are influenced by Satan the devil. Today, Satan is the one who directs the course of this world. A lot of times people get mixed up about that. So, you know, it's amazing how simple little truths that we have are not understood generally. I grew up in a Protestant background. I didn't know that Satan was the god of this world. Now, I don't know that we sang it back then, but we have the song, This is my father's world. You know, well, in, in one sense, he is the one who created the rocks and the trees and the skies and the seas. You know, he did all that. But as far as the God of this world, the one that's directing the course of this world, it is not God. It is not Jesus Christ. He is, you know, overseeing certain things and making sure that certain things come out certain ways. But he is allowing Satan not quite free reign because he holds him back from some some things, as we see with uh, Job. But nevertheless, he's the one that is influencing this world. We've all read Ephesians, the second chapter, and verses 1 and 2, but let's just be reminded of it. its uh, I know it's a go-to verse for me on many occasions because it explains so much. He says, you, he's speaking of the Gentiles there, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's what brings the death penalty is our trespasses, our sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And and we need to understand that when the whole world is going any one direction, it's probably a good idea to stop and think, okay, what's wrong with this idea? What's wrong with the idea? You know, some years ago, it lasted for decades. It's still around, the idea of self-esteem. The problem that most people have is low self-esteem. Okay, we all have a problem, you know, living with ourselves, so we might as well get over it. But the idea was really promoted that because we have low self-esteem, if we can just build people's self-esteem, then they'll all be wonderful people and solve all of our problems. Make Johnny feel good about himself and he'll be a perfect little angel. Doesn't work that way. And, you know, we've finally gotten away from it because there were a few voices that finally figured this out. This is not the way things work. You know, if you do what's right, you'll feel good about yourself. If you do what's wrong, you won't feel good about yourself and you shouldn't feel good about yourself if you do what's wrong. But if you do what's right, then self-esteem take care of itself. We all want to do something well, but that whole self-esteem movement, while there was a certain element of truth, remember it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's good and there's evil in it. And it's important for young people to be taught certain things and to to develop the talents that they have and, and to truly feel good about themselves. But we don't put that ahead of doing what is right. It's the cart before the horse problem. I know it took me a long time to figure that out and even a hard time to to explain it. 
maybe still don't explain very well, but it is the cart before the horse. We do what's right, and the right feelings will follow. We do what's wrong, and we're going to have a problem with our self-esteem, so to speak. Although, the truth of the matter is that they have found that many people in prison have high self-esteem. They think that they're wonderful. They think they're great, but they don't do what's right. And ultimately, you know, they're not going to be happy, and they aren't happy, ultimately. But they have great esteem in themselves. Whenever the world is going in a direction, just watch advertisements on television. And look what they're saying. What are they promoting? Because what they're promoting is probably not what you really want to do. What they're promoting is not God's way of life. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and he works in the sons of disobedience. And where he works the most is in the media. When you think about it, what better place to work than in the media and to promote the values of the media? How is it that everybody's got to have a tattoo? Now, please, if somebody, probably somebody has a tattoo here, and you probably got it before you came in the church. I, I know that there are people that do. So I'm not, I'm not ragging on you, please. But those of us who understand the truth can read the 19th chapter of Leviticus and find that it's not what we should do. But how do they sell this? Every celebrity, every hero is covered with tattoos more and more. And it's because that's how they sell it. They don't say, everybody go out and get one. They just show them that way. Read the marketing of evil. It talks about that, how they just promote these things. And, and they go into the lowest levels of society, the lowest elements of society, find what the next trend is, and then... They put it out there on MTV or on their YouTube, not YouTube so much, but uh, Snapchat and whatever the, the kids are looking at, uh, TikTok, and they, they put it all out there for them, and they just say, this is normal. And all these things become normal. You know, men with men, women with women, it all becomes normal because that's what they're promoting out there. And then people just say, well, it must be okay. Well, it's not okay. Satan is trying to destroy this world. He's trying to destroy the family. And we need to understand that. And we need to be careful about getting caught up in the things that we see. And just because the world's doing it, just because everybody's doing it, doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it's good. And our young people, how, how can they possibly know unless we teach them? Because they just... They're, they're born into this, this world, this time. Just like we were born at a different time, and our time was not all that great either. I go back and listen to some of the 50s and 60s music. Not nearly as innocent as I thought it was. Nor are the movies back then. They're not so innocent. But they've just progressed. But some of it's pretty racy when you think about it. When you stop and listen. Satan is the God of this world. Notice over in John, the 14th chapter, John 14. And actually, you can read this about three places in the book of John. I'll just read this one. John 14, verse 30. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me. Does he have anything in you? Does he have anything in me? What part of our brain, what part of our emotions, what part of our our ideas does he have in us? Jesus was able to say, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. But I dare say, that we can't say the same. We'd like to be able to say the same, but which one of us can say that I don't have a part of Satan's thinking in my mind? I, I hope we can understand that, yes, he can influence us. In fact, 
We can read in uh, Luke, the ninth chapter, Luke 9. Here were the disciples of of, uh, Christ. I believe they were disciples of John before that, if I'm not mistaken. I'd have to go back and look that up. Some of the disciples of of Jesus were disciples of John the Baptist prior to uh, following Christ. But here in Luke, the ninth chapter, in verse 51, it came to pass when the time had come for him, that is Christ, to be received up. In other words, he's coming to Jerusalem. The time is running late in his ministry. That he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So they knew the time of year. They saw he was going to Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans didn't want to have anything to do with him. A lot of animosity between Samaritans and Jews. Then in verse 54 it says, And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just as Elijah did. Now you you remember Elijah there uh, was told to come up to the king. And uh, he sent out a, a captain of 50, and they went out there, and they commanded him to come down. He called fire down from heaven. Well, consumed them and consumed another, and the third one was a little bit more humble. And his life and the life of his men were saved. But they were looking back on that example that they found in the Bible But even things that we find in the Bible, if we misinterpret them or misunderstand them or take them out of the proper context, can be lead us astray. He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. In other words, are we going to destroy all these people just because they turned us away? There's a difference between somebody going to take you into custody and perhaps kill you, that's a little different situation than just being rebuked. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard when somebody cuts you off in traffic. It's hard when somebody does something, says something negative toward you, even a a friend. We get our emotions, get carried away, and it's easy to have wrong thoughts about other people. We could also note here in uh, Matthew, the 16th chapter, Matthew 16. This is a more famous example. This is where uh, Jesus asked them who they thought he was, and and uh, Simon or, or Peter said, well, you, you're the Christ, the son of, you know, the, the Messiah, and then down in verse 20, he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. In verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Verse 22, Matthew 16:22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. We're not going to allow this to happen to you. Well, now, most of us, if somebody said that, we'd be flattered. Boy, I've got people who are loyal to me in that way. But what did Jesus respond? How did he respond? He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You're looking at it from a human perspective. You're not looking at it from the perspective of God's plan. And he called him Satan because that's who was influencing him. That's that's where Satan was in him. When it says, "There's there's nothing of him in me, well, there was a little bit of Satan in Peter influencing his mind. 
It's a very difficult thing to sometimes know the truth in every matter or the, the right reaction in every matter. He's called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4th chapter, verses uh, 3 and 4. I won't turn there, but 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 speaks of Satan as the God of this age. Let's notice how he works behind the scenes, even with great nations. Let's go back to Daniel, the 10th chapter. It isn't just individually that he works with us, but he... He works, Satan does, in a big way with with nations themselves. Here we find in chapter 10 of Daniel that he was fasting. He was going without any uh, pleasant food or meat or wine uh, for a period of three weeks. Now, was that a total fast? I don't know, but it seems to indicate that. And... He saw something by the river, verse 5, I left my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Ephaz. Uh, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire. And Lord, this was not a typical man. This looked like something out of, uh, I don't want to say that. <clears throat> Got to be careful. I'm going to say out of a Marvel uh, cartoon or something, but uh, you know how they, they have their eyes shining and everything. I think they get that from things like this. They, they probably borrow biblical descriptions. This was a powerful angelic being. It wasn't some Marvel cartoon figure, but this was something that would have been very frightening. I think any of us, if we had been there and seen it, would have you know, been scared spitless, as they say. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, so it was in vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. So they didn't see the vision, but they, they felt something there. They knew something was going on, and it scared them. And they fled. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me. For my vigor was turned to fragility or frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. And suddenly a hand touched me and lifted him up. And he says, verse 11, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you. I love that, that expression, O Daniel, man greatly beloved. You know, God loves all of us if we are his. And wouldn't that be very comforting for any of us to hear from an angel of God that you're greatly beloved by God? He says, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word, uh, this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, when he was fasting, when he was humbling himself before his God, from the very first day, remember this is three weeks later, he says, Your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. Verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. So here's a powerful spirit being representing God. And he says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. There's a great angelic war that is taking place there, a battle that was taking place. And he says, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Not talking about physical kings, talking about spiritual kings. Now, make no mistake, God is in charge. And and God allowed this to happen for a purpose, for a reason, for us to understand some things. But apparently, we, we believe that this is probably Gabriel, who seemed to be the messenger angel, and Michael more the warrior angel. But whoever it was, this angel in vision... 
uh, was stopped from coming to Daniel for 21 days. And this was a very important message when you really look at it. It says, verse 14, Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. So this is something that was to, this is a major vision. In fact, the vision we read of in the 11th chapter, which gives the most detailed prophecy uh, of anything in terms of individuals and what they're going to do and everything. It's, it's an amazing prophecy. Even the commentaries give you a lot of information on it because it's so easily recognized. Even Cleopatra is, uh, doesn't mention by name, but by you know, what she did, uh, Anthony and Cleopatra are, are, are found in this passage. And, and lots of other individuals, historical figures. It was a major prophecy that was given to him. And obviously, Satan and his spirit there in Persia, and probably other spirits, withheld Gabriel for a period of time. They didn't want that to be known. They, they had some idea, apparently. But notice in verse 20, then he said, do not, do you know why I'm, I've come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come. There are great spirit powers that are working behind these nations. If you, if you want to read an interesting book, don't forget the movie, the book, uh, Not Without My Daughter, uh, about a true story about a lady from uh, Alpena, Michigan, married this fellow from Iran, which is Persia. And uh, everything's going well, but she went back to visit with, with her husband to visit his family, took her daughter with her, and he turned into something very different while he was there. And when you read the book, you realize just how powerful there is a spirit influence in that, in that nation. It was there at this time of Daniel, no doubt is still there. And when you look at the, the attitude of the people and the chanting and the hatred toward Israel and so forth, who's stirring that up? We can read another example. That's in Revelation, the 16th chapter, Revelation 16 and verse 12. Uh, This is at the very end. Uh, I'll start in verse 12. It says, then the sixth angel, Revelation 16, 12, then the third, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the king from the east might be prepared And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. To bring them to what the world calls Armageddon, but it's the battle of the great day of of God Almighty. And these are spirits that are influencing mankind. And they're going to gather the kings of the earth and all the nations of the earth to come and fight against Christ at his return. They're very powerful and they have tremendous influence. We know from Isaiah 14 and verses 12 to 15 and Ezekiel 28, that's Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, where it speaks of Lucifer, a light bringer, as I will do this, I will do that, I will exalt myself here, I will exalt myself, I will put my throne above the throne of God. We see that big I in there. And then also in Ezekiel, he was the anointed cherub. And we see that he... Um, He also was was arrogant, his beauty. He had great musical ability, speaks of his timbrels and his pipes and the day that he was created. He has tremendous musical ability and knows how to use it. 
Just think about how music affects our emotions. It can affect them positively or it can affect them negatively. It can put you in depression or make you want to get up and dance or, you know, shout, whatever. It, it, it has a powerful influence on us and Satan can use it to his advantage. Not all music is good. And sometimes he's very clever. Some of the most beautiful music has the most abominable words to it. And you could have it the other way around, but usually some of the, the greatest music has terrible words to it. And it gets in you and you, you know, sometimes you, you wake up and you, you're singing some, something that you wonder, well, how'd that get there? Uh, I, I remember one time, this wasn't something that Satan put there, I'm sure. But you watch advertisements, and I, I had this thing, you're in luck if you've got a McCullough chainsaw. You're in luck with it. It was, it was an advertisement. It had, to, it had a, a song to it. <laughs> it. It's just amazing how stuff gets in our brains and we can't get it out. And, and if it comes from Satan, then it's a, it's a problem. That's why we have to be very careful what we allow into our minds, the kind of books we read, the kind of television we watch, the kind of uh, music we listen to, the people that we listen to, all of those things. We must do our part to avoid Satan's influence. In James, the fourth chapter, we'll turn over there just a couple more scriptures here. James 4. It tells us in verse 6, he's already talked about how there are wars and fights amongst them. Was this talking about true Christians? Or was this to a broader audience? But it says here in verse 6, But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, Satan was filled with pride, his beauty, what he wanted to do, what he thought he could do, what he thought he was responsible to do. And he had great beauty, great talent, and he got proud. But it says, but God gives grace to the humble. The attitude that we are to have through fasting. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded. One foot in the world, one foot in the church, you might say. Double-minded, as he's describing there. Let's notice over in 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. It says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In both cases here, he's, pro- he's quoting from Proverbs 324, uh, 3.34. Sorry. Um, God gives, resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And then he warns us to be sober, to be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So we must resist him. We must recognize that he is there. That's why we afflict our souls on this day. We humble ourselves. We have a different approach than Satan has. And we fight him on the one ground that we can, and that is on our knees before our God, humbling ourselves. This is why one of the parts of the sample prayer that we probably miss the most is that part that says, Deliver us from the evil one. Matthew 6, verse 13. We are to pray, Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from temptation. That's very important that we 
we do that, but we must be vigilant, we must humble ourselves, we must recognize how Satan works. As with Adam and Eve, we must make a choice. We can arrogantly trust ourselves and the prince of the power of the air that is influencing us, or we can humble ourselves and trust our creator.